Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Prepare to get stunned. The Steve Austin Show is back and better than ever. And I've been kicking his ass, kicked out of the pile driver. You, it's time to go home. With new exciting episodes featuring tales from his new life, unbelievable past interviews, and talks to pro wrestling pals. You name it, Steve's on it. You're a hell of a damn wrestler. Download new episodes of the Steve Austin Show every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest, as promised, is the great Sam Vecini, fresh off a few day, well-deserved days off after his amazing amount of material covering the NBA draft. And I do think that the added time gave us a, an interesting perspective on it, and especially a few moves have happened since then. So we talk about the draft, winners and losers, and some of the decisions that were befuddling to us and walk through some of those. But also that maybe this is a signal that general managers are approaching a few different skill sets differently, which is very interesting as we lead into the offseason that is rapidly, rapidly approaching. Great conversation brought to you by Yahoo Daily Fantasy. Go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy and enter the promo code POD25 for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. Also, TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car. And betonline.ag can use that familiar podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. Conversation with Sam runs about an hour and a half. As usual, we cover a lot of ground. And as usual, Sam uses some colorful language. So for those of you who that matters for your listening experience, maybe young ones are around. It's not often, but there are a few though. So I just wanted to note it as a public service, I guess. So hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, what's going on, Danny? Uh, I'm excited to be here. Like I was telling you before uh, we got going here, I took a good solid two days off, I would say. I'm back. It's Wednesday. I'm alive and my brain is working again. So that's good. Yeah. It, it And it's a really nice time to be able to get a couple of days because your your fire is most is most of the way done for right now, though obviously you're, you're big into the offseason as well. But I mean, things are about to pick up to another degree in like two days. So it's exciting to to kind of be able to get that little to get that little juice right before another sprint. Uh, I'm guessing like 10 to 15 days and then it'll calm down again. Yeah. Shout out the NBA for giving us a solid 10 day break between the draft and free agency. What a what a decision on their part, I would say. So I I hated it. right around the draft because I was like I just didn't have any I didn't have any stopping and so that was really because you know the finals and everything like that for me is really tough but after I'm like okay this is nicer and yeah I mean we did the mock-off season and that took a lot of time and focus and all that but it is good to kind of have that very short breather like not enough that the the hyperventilating stops in terms of media attention and everything else like that but enough to like give us a little bit And, and I would say fans too that you can kind of process the draft and and also i think that helped facilitate us doing this where instead of going at it the night after we have a couple days to think about really where all this is going yeah that's uh exactly how i felt about it like this typically i do that like big ten thousand word wrap-up thing that i did um typically i do that like the next day i try and have that out the friday but there was just enough space to let it breathe where i was just like you know what Let's get this out on Monday. I think people still care about the draft then. And I actually 
kind of really dig this break now. Like it creates total madness and uncertainty in regard to like, okay, these teams are clearing cap space, clearing cap space for a thing that we really don't know, like whether or not that's going to, whether or not anything's going to happen right now in free agency. But I I like the break. I like the idea that we just like kind of slowed things down a little bit. Another piece of the timing that was really disorienting for me this year was having a series of huge trades happen about an hour before the draft started or was the the listed start time had actually started a half an hour after that but like the the Hawks trade moving up to number four happening early I mean even if you want I mean the Connolly trade is a little bit more complicated because that involved established players and picks but to have those kinds of moves basically because we we knew who the top three were going to be that was also really disorienting for me and fun i i enjoyed it even though that was a time that i was planning on like taking like a little bit of a break before the draft started but it added it added a little bit more juice yeah for sure uh i'm just the more that i look forward to free agency the more that i just keep coming away thinking like this is going to be complete madness you know what i mean this is going to be just totally insane and like we're, we're going to think of guys that like we don't really think of on the trade market right now. Like Kevin Love is getting discussed on the fringes of the trade market now, but like he is such a weird contract with Cavaliers. I think it's like pretty significantly underwater to be honest, but because he has – this weird situation, people don't really bring them up. And then, you know, we're going to get to mid July and some team's going to miss out and they're going to go, Oh, Kevin loves on the market. Uh, you know, Oh, we have to pay Tobias Harris a max to get him to come. Like, it's just going to be these weird situations that arise. And it's just going to be a bananas first two weeks of July. And Oh, by the way, it's all going to happen at summer league because they moved summer league up this year, uh, to be on July 5th. It's just going to be a really weird deal. Yeah. Along those lines, summer league starting on the fifth, but the moratorium doesn't end until the sixth is going to be interesting because then there, I mean, it seems like their things are structured in a way that it won't be too, it won't be too challenging, but you're right on the, on the timing. And, and again, it's going to depend on, on all these things, but I think the over, like the, the, the bigger perspective here that I think that you're getting at with this off season is the combination of intense cap space around the league, a ridiculous proportion of the league hitting free agency and just what is already on the books creates this really unusual challenge in terms of calibrating value. So Kevin Love is a great example here. You know, people in my mentions due to the mock-off season are talking about Kevin Love's value right now because that's something that came up. But it with a lot of these different situations, and, and this can go both from a player plus contract, I've termed this the Nene test before, or it could be how teams value cap space, how teams value 2020 flexibility. There is so much that is open right now that whoever values this and also predicts where things are going correctly is going to do really well. And that's why I think one of the places to start with everything that's happened in June is the Atlanta Hawks. Because what the bet that Travis Schlenk made, he made two different bets. One was that getting taking on bad salary for 1920 right now is better than taking it on in July. And that's an important bet. And then the second one is that DeAndre Hunter is meaningfully better than the players that were available at the number eight pick. So, yeah, I think that we should, we should take both those things kind of separately. Right. So 
Well, they're connected, though, at the end of the day, because 17 ended up getting moved within that deal to the Pelicans. But I think that the thing with Schlenk that he understood and was intelligent about was he didn't want to get left at the altar and not be in a case where or not be in a situation where he could be able to take on money to acquire pick capital and draft assets. I think that that's a really smart decision first and foremost on his part, because I do think that there is a real chance that that would have been a problem later in the off season. Like we're seeing Cleveland right now. I think they might be overvaluing the J.R. Smith deal. Like I think it's probably worth like two second round picks and it seems like they're set on trying to get a first round pick, but we're kind of seeing it with Cleveland, the J.R. Smith deal that they're kind of struggling. It seems like to get the value that they need for it. That's intriguing to me. The fact that like they knew that Brooklyn needed to, needed to dump this cap space. And I think that a big part of that is kind of what you were getting at a minute ago, where there are, there's so much cap space around the league that fewer teams need it. And thus they don't necessarily basically Atlanta didn't want to get left at the altar, I guess is the way to put it. Right. So, I think it was smart from Travis to do this because Brooklyn, I think, was going to always be the most obvious case of a team that was desperate to jump to drop cap space. And Atlanta took advantage of that desperation in a really, really smart way. Um, I, I agree. I'll, I'll do you want to jump there? Yeah, I'll ju- yeah. We'll, we'll jump there and then we can talk about the second part after. I shouldn't have put them together because I knew each merited its own discussion. But so another reason I really liked the Nets trade from their perspective is Getting the 17th pick before it became a player that then you you know you have on your roster and everything else like that, but it's just it's just a less versatile asset and yep. and doing it enough before the draft that they were able to make other subsequent moves, but also thinking about Brooklyn needing to clear cap space. So the expectation should be that you know maybe, and maybe they strike out. Doesn't seem like that's going to happen, but maybe they do. But the expectation should be that Brooklyn's next few first round picks are going to be less valuable than the one this year, even though this draft isn't super inspiring. So being able to actualize that is a really good thing because those future firsts are less valuable. So, hey, you can get 17. 17 is a, a pretty good pick, you know, a, a nice place to be. And and they were able to do that and then able to turn it into something that they, they value that they value differently. And, and that's, that's fine, too. That's an important thing that you can do with draft picks. And so I really like it from that perspective. I agree with you that Brooklyn is one of the higher leverage ones. And also... The other part of what I was getting at with the so many teams having cap space, you're, you're right to bring up the idea that we don't know how many teams are going to desperately be trying to clear it. Because, like, for example, the Nets, like, they've done their business now. It doesn't look like they're going to need, need to do much. Maybe they need to do some little things depending on where estimates go and who they get. But the other component of that is, so you could think about this as supply and demand, where there are also going to be so many more teams with space that the Hawks won't have as much leverage in July as they do right now. Because invariably, some teams are going to strike out on the players that they want the most, and then they're going to be sitting there. The New York Knicks are a pretty good example of this. There are numerous others that I think could be there. Sacramento could be there. Lots of them. And so then they're, you know, so let's say you get to July 6th, and yeah, theoretically, if Brooklyn hadn't made a trade now, they could make a trade then. 
And I think those teams are, by that point, remember by July 6th, those teams are going to know what the major free agents decided. And they're probably going to know what a fair number of the minor ones decided. And just by sheer numbers, there's going to be space on the market. And some of those teams would rather, you know, use it for assets than pay free agents. And so then at that point, the Hawks have a lot more competition. So from their perspective, I think this was really good. And from Brooklyn's, I understand it. Not only getting Torian Prince, I think it's going to be interesting to see if if he does anything more for them than he did for the Hawks. I've been very disappointed in Prince the last couple of years. But also because getting leverage the way the Nets think they are, are going to be by if they get, let's say, two max players, it's a little bit hairy. And, you know, the 17 pick is a good asset, but it's not so strong, especially because they, if they'd waited, that would have become a player to say, oh, well, we definitely shouldn't have made the trade now. Well, so, yeah, I think that a lot of it comes down to how you value Torian Prince with one year left on his deal. Like, I think 17 is definitely more valuable than Prince at this stage. Like, and this even comes from someone who thinks Prince is like a what, what, pretty so, reliable so, role player. So that's interesting. I was thinking of 17 as the compensation for getting off of Crab, and then the future pick as compensation for Prince. That's well, just I think the way that I thought of the trade. Honestly, that's probably the better way to think about it because 17, uh, what, Alan Crabb's on like 18 million, something like that? 18.5, yeah. 18.5. So 17 overall is uh, just based off of what we've seen in terms of trades over the course of the years and, uh, you know, the past couple of summers specifically. 18 million is right around where I would have pegged 17 overall in terms of like asset value. Uh, now we can throw in like, is Alan Crabb worth like maybe $4 million a year? So maybe it's like a $14 million situation where the team, uh, you know, valued Alan Crabb as being $14 million underwater. Maybe. I mean, Alan Crabb might be semi-useful for them, if only because they really value floor spacing. And I think they're going to want to try and put Trey in very positive situations to succeed. But like, I think it's probably fair just to call it 18 million. And then the future first for Tory and Prince, maybe I still think that that's probably a little bit more valuable than Torian, to be honest. Like, unless you really think Torian is going to start to give a shit defensively, like in a significant level, then I think that you can buy that if you think that he can do that. But we just haven't seen it yet at this stage. And we know he can shoot it reasonably well from distance. We know that he can attack a closeout on a reasonable level. He can be like a decent advantage scorer, uh, Defensively, though, I think is just the big question. Like, what is he going to be on that end? Because assuming they get Kyrie, maybe they end up with another free agent. uh, The big part of Torian's value is going to be shooting in defense. And we think he can shoot it like a 37% clip. The bigger question is, is he going to defend at any sort of level? Yeah, I I think that's a fair way of thinking about it. And I also was really, and this can be a transition into the other point I already brought up uh, about DeAndre Hunter, is that I think the role that Hunter will play on these Hawks is effectively the role that they wanted Torian Prince to play, but he wasn't quite there. And if that was a a, a niche, a role that they really wanted, you know, like a positional skill set, then I think that's where you start to get into the argument that maybe maybe Hunter, the margin between Hunter and the other players that would have been available at eight wasn't so big. But if they wanted that specifically, then maybe yeah. it starts to get a little bit closer. Yeah, so I, I actually am someone who thought that DeAndre Hunter 
we could also say Jarrett Culver and Darius Garland were in this tier for me as well. I had them as like third tier players, guys that I think will be very real NBA starters with like upside of maybe making an all-star game someday. And I had DeAndre at four on my board personally. Um, I think DeAndre probably has a little bit less upside than the other two. But what I think DeAndre helps to make up for that is just how quickly I think he's going to come in and be the kind of player that exactly the Hawks need. It's not even just like a little bit. They needed someone that they could trust to take on tougher on-ball defensive assignments from someone like a Trey Young, from someone like a Kevin Herter, or from someone like a John Collins down at the four. DeAndre Hunter is the most versatile defensive player on ball in this draft. Off ball, you know, Zion Williamson is ridiculous, and Matisse Thibel's really, really good, and Brandon Clark's really, really good. But as an on-ball, high-level, switchable defender, DeAndre Hunter is the best in this draft, I think. You throw in the fact that, you know, he's a guy that's going to shoot 37% from three, I think, pretty quickly in the NBA, maybe by year two, he's at that level. So you're talking about a player who's going to be a, if he's not an elite level defender, uh, he's just going to be that level below. And then you throw in a guy that's going to hit 37% from three, average 12 points a game, maybe gives you basically what Torian Prince was giving you. Cause I think Torian was right around like 13 points a game, uh, doing it on that kind of shooting plus being an elite level defender. I mean, just think about how expensive those guys tend to be in free agency. Like, those guys get $20 million a year. Those guys, if you trade for them, you have to give up multiple draft picks for them. Look, like, I think that the Hawks probably overpaid slightly to get DeAndre. Like, I think they just gave up, what, they gave up four, 17, and a future first. That's probably one pick too much, right? But it's... In DeAndre's case, I think that the fit is just so strong and the skill set so valuable in the modern NBA that I was okay with the decision to do it, even though it was more than I would want to pay for it. Plenty more to talk about with Sam, but first message from Yahoo Daily Fantasy. If you want to get closer to the action, Yahoo Daily Fantasy is for you. They offer single-day and week-long contests so you can pick a new team every day. Yahoo Daily Fantasy also has the lowest management fees across the industry, so don't play with other sites that charge high fees just to play. Yahoo's lower fees mean more prizes for you, the players, to win. To get started, go to yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy and find the contest that's right for you. And when you sign up, use the pod25 promo code for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. So once you get all set up, you can try a 50-50 contest where the top half of the field wins, or you can try out Yahoo's quick match feature where they pair you with another player of your skill level, which is great, especially when you're starting out. You can play a quick match contest for free or for cash, and there's no management fee. So you keep 100% of your winnings. If you want, you can try larger prizes, bigger bragging rights, and guaranteed prize pool contests. But no matter what you want to try, go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy and use that promo code pod25 for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. The sooner you get to playing, the sooner you can get to winning at yahoo.com slash daily fantasy. Also have a message from TrueCar. 60 seconds. That is exactly how long this commercial lasts. You know what else you can do in about a minute? Get an offer for your car with TrueCar. That's right. In the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a true cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate number, watch how your car's details pop up. 
answer a few questions, and you will get an accurate true cash offer from a local TrueCar certified dealer. It is that easy. After that, you can bring your car in and they'll check it out with you together. You can ask questions, get the answers you need so there are no surprises. Then, simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. It happened by circumstance, but I also really like the sequencing that we got through because the other piece... I agree with what you said about about Hunter there and the value and all that. And especially because I don't know, but I'm guessing there aren't that many guys like him in next year's draft too. So maybe the Hawks end up with a good pick. But if there isn't a DeAndre Hunter there and you want a DeAndre Hunter, then you're SOL. And why I like the, the structure of this is there was one more thing that the Hawks sacrificed, I guess you could say, in the trade. And that was they took on Solomon Hill's contract. And yeah. that ties in with the other kind of huge storyline to me of the second half of June, which is what the Pelicans are doing. And so I've covered the Anthony Davis trade in the space twice already. We can talk about it a little bit if you want. But the most interesting part to me, I mean, we knew they were going to draft Zion. They're, the most interesting thing to me, not not the most important, I think, drafting Hayes, drafting Zion, of course, more, is I have no idea what they're doing with the cap space they cleared. Now, if that's a way, if that's a benefit you can create in the trade, the four for eight trade, Absolutely. Solomon Hill is a negative value contract. If you can create that space, even if it's to take on a differently bad contract for assets, that's fine. But I have no idea right now what David Griffin wants to do with what is basically max space. Yeah, I think Griff just wanted more than anything to have cap liquidity going forward. Like if he ends up going out and signing someone like Rodney Hood to a one year like 15 million dollar deal or something like that because what we think rodney will probably get like million uh on like a longer term yeah maybe I, I i wonder what his market is going to be but there's an argument like it he's a player that i could see somebody really liking and giving i think that's on the high end but eh, possible yeah so like if if you're griff and you just cleared the solomon hill space are you willing to just say hey rodney we want to keep things like very flexible over the course of the next little while but come Play for us one year, fifteen million. If we're out of the playoff race by March or by February, I guess we'll send you to a contender. But if we're not, we think you're a perfect fit for what we're trying to build. You can really space the floor, um, and like you're an interesting piece that fits us in terms of our age curve, right? So, like to me, that's the kind of move that I would do that I would make if I was Griff. At least, like I would try and be going down the road of you know, doing shorter term deals that emphasize shooting. Uh, And Solomon Hill can't shoot. I mean, he's a good defender. uh, We think still, I I think that that's like, we don't necessarily know what Solomon Hill is anymore, maybe, but we we think Solomon Hill is a good defender. Uh, But a guy that's never been a high level shooter, never been a, uh, you know, super elite role player. So if I was Griff, what I'd be trying to do is just that I'd be trying to, you know, convince guys to come on high money short-term deals uh, until I'm ready to contribute and just make sure that all these high money short-term deals are guys that fit within our culture and fit within uh, the roster that we're trying to build uh, in terms of a floor spacing perspective. It also ties in with an idea that I've been thinking about since the Davis trade happened, which is that, and also really since they got Zion, I mean, even before AD, because we knew it was going to, ha- we knew AD was going to get moved. It was just a question of to whom and for what, but especially considering the return Griff and the Pelicans got in that deal, 
to me, the most logical way to handle the 1920 season from New Orleans' perspective is to use it as a broad-scale evaluation year, not only for Zion and his best yep. role offensively and defensively, but also for this just really unusual collection of talent they got. So Lonzo, Hart, and Ingram are all players that dealt with significant injuries last year. They're all players that could look really good on an up-tempo team. They they have the opportunity for playing time, even though some of the fit things are a little bit weird. And it can go beyond that because I think what they should be looking for is a lot of different skill sets. And then you just see, well, I mean, yes, all of these players are going to get better and develop over time and add new skills, which make their fits change. But that's a, a good approach. So have a rim-running center in Jackson Hayes. Granted, I think the resources they gave up to get him are a little bit severe. But have a rim-running center. Have a stretch four that can play with Zion Williamson. Maybe a switchy four if you could really even pull that off. Some versatile wings. You know, try long. Oh, so you're, you're full in on playing Zion at the five. I think it's an option. I think that's I think that's the end game as well. I, I'm not sure of that. It's you know, and I'm going to watch a lot of him at summer league and try to get a feel for this. I think it's a possibility that they should consider. And uh, I, I will say that in general, like in the playoffs, I agree with you. But if I was the Pelicans, I just like wouldn't want to put that wear and tear on him. Oh, oh, agreed. I think they should at, bare, min- I mean. at bare minimum they should have been looking for. I mean, they got Hayes for this purpose, but they they should have been looking for. I use Aza Pachulia for this, but Aaron Baines works too. Of like a a center that is capable that is burly and can handle twenty to twenty eight minutes per game in the regular season. And then isn't going to be so good that you feel like you have to play them big minutes in the playoffs. Like, And what's so crazy about it is that skill set, that kind of place in their career is going to become incre- increasingly available over the next few years. Like if teams want to go to this approach of a patch. Well, here, here's the name, right? It's they should try and sign Dwayne Dedman, I think. Yeah, I would really like Dedman there. I think I think he would be a, a nice fit. I think de- depending on, you know, they could give him more of a balloon payment to make it a shorter term deal. Deadman hasn't made like, that much in his career. He'd be a great fit. So I, Dwayne, I'm on board. Yeah, Dwayne Deadman so far in his career has made, I want to say like $17 million, maybe $18 million. Something in that range. So yeah. if I was Griff, I would say, Hey, we'll pay you two years, 26. And the second year is going to be a non-guarantee or a team option or something like that. Maybe a non-guarantee, um, that goes on maybe June 22nd so that you have clarity going into the off season, but that we have the ability to maybe clear some cap space by trading you or maybe taking on a bad deal at some, on some juncture. Um, or we just might keep you because we think you're a really good fit with the team, but that's what I, that's the kind of structure I would look for if I was the Pelicans. Um, and that's the kind of player I would look for as well. Cause I think that that's, that's the kind of fit that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I'm on board with with Deadman, and especially because he's he's proven to be pretty, I think, stable defensively. You know, he's not. I don't think he's a standout. I, I had hoped for that earlier yeah. in his career, but he's good. And and so then you, he's he's a piece that that they can think about. And okay, how does this work? And it's useful a, defensively, knocks down threes. Yeah, you know, yeah, and so just like kind of a 
smart guy that can play 25 to 28 minutes a game. Exactly. So totally on board there. And then, you know, the guard position, I think they have they have enough kind of irons in the fire there with, with Hart and Drew and Lonzo, Etwan Moore. You, know, you could go and all that. I, I'd be looking for, I still think they need another forward, ideally somebody who could space the floor. But they can get that. They, yeah. have, they have a ton of cap space. There are lots <clears> of things they can do there. But so, yeah, that's what I think is, and it seems like Griff is largely going in that direction, which is exciting. And that gets into, uh, so you and I haven't really talked much about these prospects since I watched a lot more film. And, you know, I didn't get to do nearly as much as you, obviously, on any single player. Much Ooh, less let's have some fun. And so Jackson Hayes is, is an interesting one to start with because Hayes is, I, I understand the appeal. And he, you know, talented yeah. rim runner, his shot blocking prowess can do it with both hands. All of that. I'm on board with it. I can see it coming. I think he's going to be really, really fun at Summer League. But he basically didn't take any jump shots all year. His free throw form looks good, and he makes his free throws. So I think it could be coming. It could be a circumstance where he just, you know, whatever. There might be oh, something. He, might be something. That, I don't think he's going to shoot it at all. Interesting. Well, then. Okay. Yeah, I mean, his jump shot has, like, this weird, like, side spin to it. Interesting. That I don't really think is conducive to it. I mean, like, put it this way. Like, I've talked to his trainer, uh with like BDA since that's the agency. Like I talked to him and he thinks that there's a real chance that Jackson might shoot at some point. I think he is at least three years off being able to shoot it at like a reasonable level. <sighs> I was concerned about that possibility. Uh, and, and then Hayes defensively, I love the shot blocking, but he, <laughs> and, and he moves his feet in a way that I think could end up boating, boating. Well, I didn't get to see enough of it. You know, I, Texas didn't provide enough opportunities to really get sure. all the way out into, okay, how's he going to do on the floor? But I worry that he's, to use one of Nate's terms, he's a little bit light in the shorts in terms of the the heft, like the, the, the really physically gifted bigs in the league. Like you can think about the Joel Embiid's and Nikola Jokic's of the world. And so what I think about Hayes is similar to Jared Allen, who I really liked. Like I thought Jared Allen should have been a lottery pick. But you and I have talked for years now about where the threshold is for those really valuable centers. And the, for me, the yeah. line is somewhere probably around 10 to 14. And so, you know, th- those players unambiguously valuable and not even all of those players are definite on the floor in crunch time of like, let's say conference finals level games. A lot of those guys. I mean, we just saw it with Clint Capella. Right, exactly. And so my instinct is that Hayes isn't going to reach that level. I think he could be a valuable player. I, I, I think especially having him on a rookie-scale contract, he's going to be cheap for a while, and we'll see where restricted free agency takes him in four years. But I just generally, you know, I don't think I would draft those guys high, even if I like them. And there was a lot to like with Hayes. Yeah, so I, I had Jackson at 13 on my board, so I do think that this was like a slight overdraft. If they were set on taking a center— Oh, I see. I thought you I had w- him at 7. That's interesting. Okay, so we're so we're more on the same page here. No, 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 no. Yeah, I had Goga higher than him. Okay, that's, com- that's a conversation we'll have to have later. Yeah, if I was the Pelicans, I would have taken Goga for a lot of the reasons that like I just kind of pitched Dwayne Dedman. Uh, he's just an awesome pick-and-roll player who knows exactly where to roll. Like, I think day one, Goga can step in and be, like, a pretty good NBA player. Um, Maybe not, like, starting quality immediately, but I think he'll be, like, a pretty good NBA player who can play rotation minutes very, very, very early. Um, In Hayes' case, so I'm a little bit more positive on his ability to put on weight. Uh, 
you know, he comes from like his dad was a former tight end in the NFL, uh, you know, long time tight end coach for the Cincinnati Bengals. Like, I think that his body is going to be and his genes are conducive to him putting on good weight. So I think he's going to be able to put on strength. I think that like teams aren't really going to have an issue with that. By the time he's 22, I would anticipate him being pretty solid in terms of uh, like Clint Capella came in very skinny. The the name that I just keep bringing up with Hayes is Capella. I think they're very, very similar uh, in terms of athleticism, in terms of being able to go out and switch on the floor, in terms of shot blocking, um, in terms of limitations in ter- offensively. In terms of because, weird feel offensively, because I saw some of that as well. Like, yeah, he, has, like, like he, he puts the ball in the basket, but every once in a while you're sitting there going like, if these shots are harder, is it still going to go in? Well, yeah, I think there's part of that, too. Uh, I think that Jackson has one place that I will say is I think Jackson has better hands than Capella. Uh, like, I just think yeah, he I can see that. I can see that, too. Balls from like a wider variety of angles. He, he just seems to have softer hands to me. Um, but one place that Capella is better is Capella has always been a better defensive rebounder. Jackson is not really all that comfortable def- uh, grabbing defensive rebounds and ending possessions. And like on some level, I think that like. We sometimes overvalue rebounding, but you still need to be able to do it if you're going to be a defense first rim running center. And he hasn't hit that threshold for me yet. Well, especially because um, he's not a box out guy. Like, you know, there, yeah, there, are, there, are no, players who, there are players who, who are who are can be a part of good defensive rebounding teams that are not high volume rebounders themselves. And like the Lopez twins are an easy example here, but there are a lot of them. Yep. And Hayes doesn't do that either. So he like there uh, the, the example that I would draw here. And I've, you know, and Miles Turner's gotten so much better defensively than he was early on. Is there certain guys who I feel like the shot blocks they go for are preventing them from being a better rebounder? And there are other yes. guys who are jumpy, and I don't think it's preventing them from being a better rebounder. They're just not really suited for that. And I think Hayes might end up more in that second camp than the first one where I've said for Miles Turner before that I think him being so bouncy was getting him out of position too often. Yeah, it's hard to tell because I do think Jackson chases a lot. Like, I think that his number one concern is on the defensive glass, at least, is like he just tries to block everything and tries to chase everything. Right. So how does that skill end up developing is going to be a big part of how much he finds success at the next level as a rebounder. Um, he just also needs to put on strength. If he puts on strength, starts to become just a little bit more solid positionally in terms of defensive value, I think that he'll probably be okay as a defensive rebounder, but I don't think he's ever going to be like what Capella has turned into. Uh, you know, what's you know even like Steven Adams is a guy who his teams consistently rebound better when he's on the floor. He does a lot of the same like boxing out stuff that, the Lopez twins do, but because <clears throat> Russ obviously grabs defensive rebounds at the level that he does, uh, it just always ends up in a scenario where, okay, Steven is happy to box out. Russ is going to grab the rebound. He's going to lead the break a lot faster than it would if Steven had the ball. So this is good for our team. You know, I'll be interested, you know, say Steven Adams is to get traded this summer. Uh, I will be interested to see what happens with his rebounding numbers, uh, because I think there's a chance that he is just like an awesome rebounder. Yeah, I, I think it's distinctly possible for him. In, and also, I, I'd be very interested if that happens to see what happens with OKC's defensive rebounding. Like I've talked before about 
the you know the and their offensive rebounding. I've talked about this idea. I've been obsessed with it with the Thunder for a few years now. Of I call it the double, and that's teams that are successful on the offensive glass, but also are good transition defensive teams. And I think Stephen yep. Adams is the reason that that happens with the Thunder. I mean, they, their other guys get back. Full credit to them. But the I I think where the league is going is the idea of one player, whether it's an opportunist, a go guy, you know, that's the term that uh, Brett Brown uses, or if it's just you have one really good offensive rebounder, they're on the glass and the other four guys go back. Like, I think that's yeah. where this is going. And so Adams is an Maybe some, player. like, small opportunistic, like, you know, you send a second guy to the offensive class if he sees an opportunity, but for the most part, you're dropping. Yeah, I agree with yeah. you. Yeah, and so so it'll be interesting to see where those where those kind of things, get, where they shift to, and also if there are diminishing returns, as I expect there to be, for teams that have too many good offensive rebounders because they're just getting, if they don't get the rebound, they're screwed. Now, the, the, you'll have those possessions, and this happened in the playoffs, it happens various times, where it feels like those guys are just playing volleyball and it can be really frustrating for a coach. But generally speaking, multiple really good offensive rebounders, you're giving something up on the other end, unless it's one of those really unusual kind of like springy forwards that happens to be a good offensive rebounder through another means. Yeah, I mean, this year, obviously, uh, well, actually, we don't have the we don't have the average for offensive rebound this year yet from uh, basketball reference, which is interesting. That is, I was that interested is interesting. to see. It does feel like to me, at least, I don't know if this is going to bear itself out in the numbers, but like we've seen a drastic, drastic drop, right? Like every year from 2011-12 down to 2017-18, it's gone from 27% offensive rebounding rate to 223 uh, You know, last year, not this past year that just ended, but the year before that one. I will be. I think that we've seen it plateau a little bit, and it wouldn't surprise me if there was like a slight jump in offensive rebounding this year. Does that track with you? Yeah, it does. I, 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 that does track with me. And as, as we just talked about, I'm interested in seeing where the results this year kind of push teams moving forward, not only in terms of personnel, but also in terms of approach. And those two things can often run together and skill sets and all that. And also, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I'm trying to figure out because I think there's going to be less of an impetus on switching defenses now that at least for the upcoming season, it looks like the Warriors aren't going to be the Warriors, that maybe there's just less pressure to be the kind of team that the Rockets built because, you know, big men are going to be you, you big men can stay on the floor a little bit. And there there aren't as many of those just dynamic offenses that work in the same way the Warriors offense works. So that's going to be really interesting. But maybe it could go in a couple different directions. I'm not totally sold rigidly that it's like, oh, this is – I think there are going to be more paths to success maybe in the post-Warriors world. I mean it's possible that the Warriors are just going to be back, you know, like that we're, this is a six-month or ten-month or whatever hiatus. But it's possible that maybe this stuff starts to come back a little bit more. Possible. So, yeah, I think that the role of the big man is just going to be very interesting now going forward because – for the most part, right, like the Raptors mostly played big against the Warriors. And the Warriors obviously weren't the Warriors, but the Warriors, as we know them, are obviously changing pretty dramatically. Uh, I agree with you that I think the incidences of switching defenses are about to drop a little bit. But I think that in part it's because of the success that we've seen this past year with teams like Milwaukee playing drop coverage and Portland playing drop coverage. David Vanterpool just moved from Portland to Minnesota. So I think Minnesota is probably going to move to like a drop heavy coverage scheme with uh, Carl Anthony Towns. 
And, you know, you can look at, I, I want to say Brooklyn played like some interesting zone schemes this year. Obviously Miami played uh, a decent amount of zone in comparison to what we've seen uh, from the NBA recently. So I think coaches have gotten a little bit more creative at figuring out ways to allow bigs to stay on the floor. Like I think that that was a part of this regular season was trying to find a way to get bigs on the floor a little bit more. Um, But additionally, like the Warriors, it's very hard to run a switching scheme in the NBA without like allowing shots to good shooters. What the Warriors did so well for years was they would just prey on a team's absolute worst like offensive player and just not guard him. And I think that what we're seeing now is the team, the NBA in general, the league in general is valuing shooting a little bit more. So I think it's going to be harder for teams to find that like weak link that you can just leave open and play essentially four on five basketball with. And also I would say generally speaking, if you're selecting for shooting, that can, in certain cases, depending on how players develop, take away from some of the defensive prowess stuff too. You know, like if you're if shooting is more important to you, then versatility defensively might fall by the wayside. You know, like because you're gonna you, basically the idea is you want a player to be everything, but a player can't be everything, so you have to choose between limitations. And if one limitation you're not willing to accept is shooting, then it's going to be a limitation somewhere else. Yeah, no question. Uh, I think that one of the big things we saw, you know, in this draft, I mean, we should talk a little bit more about defense, but like one thing that I will say is like, I think that this was the first draft where we saw teams genuinely decide we are going to overvalue shooting versus other skills, right? Like Cam Johnson, for the love of God, going number 11, like that was a draft pick that was pretty far out of step with where the rest of the league had him. But still, that team chose to overvalue him. Ty Jerome, that team chose to overvalue him. Uh, it happened to be the same team. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of other examples here. Like guys like Kyle Guy, Justin Wright Foreman, Mie Oni, um, like second rounders that got drafted uh, in large part due to shooting. It's just this felt like to me the first year where teams went, we are going to above all take shooters and guys who won't be like total weak links offensively uh, at the expense of other potential values. Right. And, and I think that the, what, what also ties in with that, and, and I think where you were getting at as well with this, is the lack of non-shooting perimeter players. Like, it didn't really seem, I granted, I don't, you know the, the deeper parts of this draft more than I do, but those, you know, like the, and I feel bad using him as, as the example here, but like the Michael Kidd-Gilchrist type of guys, you know, where, where, yeah. the jump, where the jump shot needs heavy surgery, and even in that case it might not work, you know, those type of players, it didn't seem like they really had much of a home in this draft. And that makes sense because they don't have much of a home in the modern NBA. The idea behind those guys has been for the last couple of years, even though some teams didn't quite recognize this in time, is you can survive with perimeter players that can't shoot, but they have to be so great at just about everything else, especially one thing that is insanely valuable to be worth it. Right. So like, I think that that was a big part of the consternation of 
the Wizards taking Rui Hachimura at number nine, right? Rui is like a pretty inconsistent three-point shooter right now. It's not that he it's not that he can't step out and shoot them, but I think there are some real questions as to how that jump shot looks from the NBA line, basically. And look, like we can talk about the process behind the Wizards taking Rui without having like spoken to him and having not created a plan for a you know, Japanese player that is going to be a global superstar uh, and how that affects the rest of the organization like that. The process there was faulty. And, you know, we can talk about in general how the process all summer for the Wizards has been faulty. But, uh, you know, Rui's an example. I think that Romeo Langford has to have a pretty substantial, you know, overhaul of shot mechanics. Um, you know, I'm trying to think who else. Brandon Clark is not really a shooter at the end of the day. But the rest of these guys that went in the top 25, let's say, you know, maybe even all of the first round, you can throw Nasir Little maybe into these questionable shot mechanics, and he plummeted pretty substantially on draft day. Um, I think that what you can say is that teams are starting to understand that it's a lot harder uh, to build if a guy can't shoot or doesn't even really have potential to shoot. Like Cam Reddish shot 33% from three this year. Cam Reddish is going to shoot it at a pretty reasonable clip, I think. Uh, Sekou Dumbuya shot like 34%. He shoots a bit of a moon ball, but his jump shot has already improved dramatically. Romeo Langford, I think, you know, he sh- has great touch all around the basket. Uh, has shown the propensity be- to be able to knock down off the dribble jumpers. There's at least a world where you can envision Romeo shooting from distance. Brandon Clark has improved dramatically over the course of his career as a jump shooter. He used to look like he was shot putting the ball. uh, And that's not an exaggeration. Whenever he was, uh, you know, at San Jose state now it's, you know, a much more mechanical slow release, but yeah, you can see a world where he can shoot two threes a game and make them at like 34% or something. Um, so, yeah, I think that what teams did this year was overvalue the – not even overvalue, but properly value uh, the ability to not just get taken advantage of on offense, basically. Yeah, and I'm wondering if that same approach – because sometimes the draft can be an early signal that – considering it's the same people making the decisions, that the same priorities will manifest in free agency. And that would be really interesting this year. A, because there are a lot of there are a lot of bigs in this class, and so how do those differentiate? But also because when you have a class with not only this kind of supply of teams with space, but also this supply of players, a key differentiator is falling in love. That's the term I usually use here. And and it's true with restricted free agents. It's true with unrestricted free agents. And so the way that a guy gets paid, generally speaking, is by one or ideally more than one team really liking them specifically and typically liking them more than similar players who do a similar thing. And if one of these selection pressures on that, if shooting is more important, let's say, than it would have been in a prior offseason, that changes some of these expectations for players that are in free agency this year. A little bit, yeah. So it's really interesting, and we should talk about the bigs in this class too a little bit because basically all of the bigs kind of fell. There were only there was only one center taken in the lottery, Jackson Hayes. There were only three centers taken in the first round. Uh, you can include Goga Patadze and Fiondu Cabangele, uh, who went 18 and 27. 
I mean, you can look up and down this board, right? Like Goga fell. Goga was being talked about. I think that there is like a sliding door scenario from what I've been told too, where like say Washington doesn't take Rui at nine because Washington was like a total mystery box heading into this draft for a lot of reasons for teams. Um, Say that they take, uh, let's go with uh, Seku Dumbuya, right? Say they take Seku at nine. I think there's a world where at 12, Charlotte takes Goga, PJ Washington goes 13, Tyler Hero 14, Romeo Langford falls to like 12. 20 or something like that. Um, and then like centers just kind of like drastically, not drastically, but like move up. Right. So like one decision <clears throat> has this dramatic butterfly effect on the rest of the way that the draft operates. Right. But it's worth saying like Nick Claxton was a guy that got invited to the draft and stays until 31. Bruno Fernando was discussed as a first round pick for a large part of the season and he falls to 34. Daniel Gafford falls to 38. Um, Bobo falls to 44. Um, I'm trying to think who, what other examples there's even one more, I think that I can't think of off the top of my head, but like centers in general in this class just fell. And it's interesting to context contextualize that with the idea of what we were just talking about with centers maybe being able to stay on the floor a little bit more if teams play these softer shell help heavy defensive coverages. So I say all of this in a roundabout way to say that, like, I think that, you know, you mentioned that you think the draft is like a early sign of things. Right. And I think it could be in regard to free agency. I often think that the draft reacts way too late to the trends that are happening around the NBA. Because I do think that now that we've seen guys like Brooke Lopez become like a legit positive level defender this year and Miles Turner become like a legit positive level defender and, you know, these bigger, not necessarily slower, but not, not necessarily elite level athletes either guys be able to stay on the floor at reasonable levels. I kind of wonder if the NBA just went like, you know, a step backward or maybe not a step backward, but like a step too far. It reacted too late. I think that's, that's the framing here is it might be that they saw they like they finally saw things coming and things might've changed before that. It's very possible. And the other, the other kind of component of this is, you know, once you get into the second round, having a, a, or even the late first, depending on who's available, if you think a center can be a low end rotation piece, then it becomes it becomes more tolerable, especially if the wings are really thin, and and a lot of this is de- is dependent on the market. But yeah, let's let's talk briefly about this the centers on the on this. So kind of the idea that I'm thinking of here is how will a guy like and granted there's a lot of other baggage for him, but like Demarcus Cousins is a really interesting one because you could see it where you know he 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 was he's a more capable four spacer than he showed this year for whatever reason his threes just weren't falling, and you could make an argument that if defensive systems are getting less aggressive switching that he so maybe maybe he ends up being somebody who benefits from the market at, at the expense of like I don't know like DeAndre Jordan or somebody like that. But I'm not super confident in that necessarily, but it might just be because DeMarcus Cousins is more than a theory. He's a player who's been in the league and has a very different story than like a, a blank slate. Oh, uh, I mean, like, honestly, I think he is kind of a theory. Like, we have no idea what DeMarcus is anymore, right? Like, he was substantially less explosive in the playoffs. He was 
just clearly not the DeMarcus Cousins we've seen in the past. So teams have to try and figure out via what, like a mystery box, basically. Is there a chance that he can get back to that level? Is there a chance that like he can get back to 80% of what he was with the Kings, basically? Because if he can't, that's like his his drop off in terms of value in the modern NBA is precipitous. Like if he can get back to 90% of what he was with Sacramento, he is a $20 million a year player. If he gets back to 75% of what he was with Sacramento, he's probably like a $8 million a year player. And if it's like 70%, maybe 60%, it's like this guy is like a mini mid-level guy. Yep. So like it's it's very tricky to try. Like I have no idea what's going to happen to Marcus this summer. I would imagine that like he probably ends up on another one-year deal just because I think that that's where the most money per year will come from. Yeah, it is kind of a sliding scale where it's like if you get offered more money, then you're going to want more years. And if you get offered less money, you're going to want fewer years with the idea that you could get it moving forward. So, and I, I think, you know, especially with the torn quad, which just sucked for him, that, I mean, he was looking closer to himself before that happened. And so you could, if you want to play the what if game of like, if that had never happened, maybe he looks different in the, the later rounds of the playoffs. But what I think, yeah. I, I hadn't really considered this before, mid-season I had, but it is fascinating that this move we talked about, and I think Brooke Lopez is a great example here, that this whole adjustment that has happened with Brooke and with Marcus Gasol and these, in, these big men who are, aren't as mobile but are like good rim protectors and can space the floor, that all of this movement has happened when the most interesting young player who fits that description has been out recovering from a torn ACL, and that's Kristaps Porzingis. Like, to yeah. me, what Rick Carlisle could and arguably, and in my case, should be doing is watching what the Bucks did there and saying, hey, if we can get that four spacing from the five, and remember, one of the big differences, granted, he's not nearly as good, but one of the big differences between the Mavericks and the Bucks is the Bucks had a, had a larger, let's call it an evolutionary imperative to f- find something like Brook Lopez because their best player is an unreliable shooter. And so that makes it really hard. You, you, that means you can't have your center be a bad shooter too. So Luca doesn't have that limitation. So maybe they, you know, can see what Brook Lopez did and go, okay, we can use that. But instead of doing that to counteract the league justified league MVP's basically only limitation, we can go to something more, maybe even five out approach offensively, but without sacrificing defensively. Yeah. So I think that at the end of the day, like I understand like why Milwaukee had to do that, right? Like they, they had to find a guy who can knock down above the break threes it was probably the number one thing that they had to look for to surround Giannis in a way that actualizes him, right? But at the end of the day, like, I think every team should be looking for big guys who shoot above the break threes. Like, it's a reason why, even though Naz Reed went undrafted, I think Naz Reed is going to shoot above the break threes at, like, a really high-level clip. Maybe not like a really high level clip, but I think he's going to do it at like a 36% level clip at the NBA level, which is why I had him at 33 on my board versus people who had him like at 50, right? Being able to find a center that can open up the floor, not just by shooting from the corners, but shooting above the break threes off of pick and pops is a monster, massive marginal advantage 
for NBA teams. And it's why I think in Dallas's case specifically, you are going to see this massive, massive leap in terms of their offensive efficiency this year. Because just having Kristaps being able to pop out to 25 feet and knock down threes with ease while running pick and rolls with Luka, that thing is going to open up the floor dramatically, especially when you throw in like, you know, Dwight Powell sitting there in the dunker spot who is athletic enough and is like a pretty reasonable finisher or a Maxi Kleba who can go out and knock down threes at like a 35% level clip. Like being able to have a consistent popping five out above the break is a massive, massive advantage for NBA teams now. Agreed. And that also, I mean, I'm going to wonder about, let's say, Willie Cauley-Stein's a good example here. Talented player. I think he he was maybe an underrated part of the transition identity for the Sacramento Kings this year. And if they go to a very different center, which it sounds like they might, they might lose some of that. But, you know, that's not really a part of his game, at least at this point. I remember going back in the day, I think there was this idea that maybe he could shoot at some point. I don't think that was as a, at Kentucky. I think that was like a year or two later. They're like, oh, he's trying to shoot threes now. But, no, it was uh, it was his pre-draft process. Is that um, where it was? Like like Drummond? Yeah, like John Gavoni tweeted out a video of Willie Cauley-Stein like making eight threes in a row. But it was like with mechanics that just aren't conducive to a game, right? Like it was super slow release. It just like wasn't ever going to translate, you know? Yeah, so – I'm interested in that and and like how some of those how some of those players are are going to adapt. Plenty more to talk about with Sam Vecini, but first a message from betonline.ag. As we approach the end of June, beginning of July, the action continues through Major League Baseball, the Women's World Cup, UFC, MLS, and so much more. And there's only one place that has you covered, one place we trust, betonline.ag. Sign up today for a free account at betonline.ag and use the promo code PODCAST1 for your 50% welcome bonus. It really is a, a fun time to be a sports fan. I know we're all missing NBA basketball and college basketball for many of you this time of year, but there's a lot going on. I've been really following the Women's World Cup, which I'm recording this on Wednesday. It's going to get back into full force on Thursday. We're going to have the next round. Really excited about that. And if you're into MMA, if you're into baseball, baseball getting getting heating up a little bit more now, which is fun. And it's the biggest game in town. So for baseball fans, that's really exciting. It's a great, and it's a great thing for betonline.ag because there are games going on every day. So if you're watching a specific contest, you can get more into it that way. And whatever you're interested in, you don't need to sit on the sidelines anymore. You can get in on the action. So go to betonline.ag and don't forget to use that podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. And alternatively, you can text BETNOW, B-E-T-N-O-W, to 238-669. Either way, you get that 50% welcome bonus at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. We, we've kind of danced around them a few times. Another another team that was loomed large in your draft piece and in my own thinking about it is the Phoenix Suns. And part of why the Phoenix Suns were just such a strange part of the draft this year is that every time I thought I had a handle on where they were going, not in the draft, but in the long term, they just did something else. So they trade TJ Warren. And I think his contract is negative value, but not severe. And, and you, you and your superlatives kind of went in the same boat that it's, you know, that what they gave up was a little bit rich, but not insane. Like, that's kind of where I am with it. Like, I, 32 is a pretty, pretty strong pick. But, you know, it's 32 in this. I will say this, like 
teams that I talked to, I consistently got no, – I'm not going to say that like every team thought there were 35 first-rounders sure. in this draft, right? Um, I would imagine that most teams had something like 25, right? Like fewer than what the picks are because that just tends to be how they operate, right? But I consistently got 35 different names from different teams that teams thought just based off of having different – ideals on what they look for and different evaluations on the players that they thought were first round picks. Right. So I I would say that the guys that fit there specifically were all of the first round. If I remember correctly, I think all of those guys were, uh, no Jordan pool is a different one. Jordan pool was like very mixed. We will say I heard he went in and killed workouts, but like very mixed in terms of that. So those 29 guys, Nick Claxton, Casey Apala, Carson Edwards, Bruno Fernando. Um, I would get Pascal pretty regularly. And then uh, the sixth guy, Bobol. And Bobol was obviously just all over the place for a number of reasons. So 35 different names. You end up you know, moving 32 for just what, like $10.8 million in cap space? That's a valuable, like, that's like a $10 million asset that you just gave up to dump $10 million worth of cap space. I, I think that like the value there is right. But the problem is that TJ Warren is not $10 million underwater in terms of his deal. I would say TJ Warren's deal is like what, maybe $2 million underwater. Like he's probably like an eight and a half million dollar player, right? Something in that range. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And it's entirely possible if the some of the positives, like the shooting explosion that he had last year, if those things are real, that he's closer to a $10 million player, maybe even above that. Like it, that's It's a possibility, right. depending on what happened. And so, yeah, I think that's a really good way of framing this, that they they treated him, and this is different than Alan Crabb. Like, right. treating him Alan as, Crabb is genuinely $14 million, at least, underwater. Right. TJ Warren is not underwater as an asset. Yeah, or, 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 or if he is, it's, if he is it's small. It's you know, it, it's it's a relatively small thing. So they did that, and so then you're thinking, okay, the Suns are they're looking at where this is going. They they want to they want to have the flexibility to go after serious cap space. And sure, I'm you know, I don't know who who they're targeting or anything like that. But so, but you're like, okay, that's a path. Then and and that was the that was the uh, the first move they made on Thursday. Then the second move they make on Thursday is moving from 6 to 11 for Dario Saric. And that was a weird move for a couple reasons. One, it seemed to me, even having not watched everybody, that there was a pretty big gulf between who was going to be available at 6 and who was going to be available at 11. And also because while I like Saric, I don't love him, and he is about to be properly paid. Maybe the restricted market tamps him down a little bit, but he's going to be on a new contract a year from now. Yeah, I mean, Dario is getting eight figures at the very least. Probably. I mean, maybe there's a chance he gets like eight or nine, but even Here, that, here's that- why I Here's why I think he will get up to 10 is because he was pretty good in that 76ers playoff run. Like he was actually really good. I think he scored over like 22 points in five of their 10 games. Like he, he was... He showed that he is not going to be like a drastic liability in the playoffs. There's another huge reason why I think he might get paid, and that's the 2020 free agent class sucks. And 
Absolutely. See, and there's probably going to be a lot of money out there, just depending on how recklessly teams spend this year. And generally, my 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 rule, and I've, I've staked some stuff out the, on this already, that there's going to be less space in 2020 than many think right now, just because if I ever have the chance to bet on teams spending recklessly, I'm going to bet on it. That's just the way these things right. work. I said the same thing in 20, leading into 2017 before 2016 happened. I'm like, this space is all going to be gone. And it was. Right. But that this one could be a little different. Teams like the Knicks could throw a wrench into my idea. But yeah, it's 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 so so okay. But let's so so you take it from that perspective. And so the Suns didn't give up much. Didn't give up much space in that because the eleventh pick makes less than six. And but 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 it seemed like a weird bet on the draft board. And Sharsh was a strange guy to to make the return. And then they draft Cam Johnson, and you're like, well, that's weird. And you know his game far better than I do. We don't need to spend a ton of time on that. I know you you had him at what like 33 on your board, something like that. Uh, I had him at 28. 28. Okay. And. Uh, he was a guy that didn't get invited to the NBA draft. So there were 24 players invited. He was a guy that, you know, over the course of the two days before the draft, there was real question as to whether or not he would be a first round pick from NBA teams. Like NBA teams that I talked to were like, I don't know. Like we think there's a real chance that he falls. I didn't really think there was a chance he would fall past Philly at 33, but obviously Philly moved way beyond their picks, right? Like they decided to trade those and who knows if they were ever going to be in a circumstance where, uh, you know, they were going to keep them if Cam Johnson had fall, but fallen, but, um, yeah, they took a guy at 11 who literally the days leading up to the draft, I thought there was a real chance he would fall out of the first round. Um, so like the, the question there is, why are you not moving down to get your guy? Like, why, why are you not saying, hey, we have this guy at 11 on our board or we have him at eight on our board or wherever we have him. We can probably get him at 19. The Spurs were trying to move up, right? Like, I think that's an open secret now. Like, the Spurs were trying to move up um, in the draft. I think that they were targeting Goga Batadze from everything that I've been told, but I, I don't necessarily know that for a fact, but they certainly were in trade rumors to try and move up. They were in those discussions. So if you're the Suns, why aren't you trying to go and get 19 and 29 for number 11 or something like that, like 19 and a future first or something like that? Um, it's because they poorly planned this in general. So continue next. So even after Sharich, we're getting to the point where the, the, the original idea still makes sense, but it's getting a little bit more tenuous. Then they trade back into the first round, giving up that. Well, here, here, hold on. Real quick on uh, Sarich too. So I think that you can make a case like he makes about $7.4 million less than TJ Warren. So I think that you can say like, hey, they just wanted to replace TJ with a guy that would buy them cap space, right? Sure. $7.4 million extra. They decided to move down from 6 to 11 and give up 32 to buy that $7 million of cap space. And then... I don't like that idea, but, but like... But yeah, I, think I, guess, that, I guess there's... I guess that, that's a way of contextualizing both of those together. Right. Then they trade back into the first round. And by doing so, not only do they give up a future first, which, yeah, we could talk about the value, the value proposition of that is okay. You know, they gave up a late first to get into the late first, to get to 24, to get Ty Jerome. But, yeah, that part was reasonable, I thought. But they, I, I doubt but, the Bucks pick will be higher than 24. Right. 
And, and then there's and there's also the diminishing returns. Generally speaking, present picks are more valuable than future picks. So you have all that going together. But they also took on Aaron Baines in the deal. And by swapping a future pick for a present pick, they add Ty Jerome's cap hold to their books for 2019. So all of a sudden, the gains that they made trading, like in terms of cap space, trading TJ Warren are now all wiped away. And then I'm even more confused about what they're doing. So yeah, they added... So you subtract the seven point four million with um, that you gained at the power forward position between Warren and Sharich uh, by five point six, I believe, is what uh, what uh, Aaron Baines is at. So you're down to one point eight. Well, no, let's let's throw you get rid of the roster hold. So that's about nine hundred less. So four point five. That's two point nine, and then you add the twenty fourth pick. Which I believe is right around two million in two terms. Point, two point uh, two. Yeah, two point two. So, so that's, that's a combined salary extra... at seven point six million. So they almost exactly wiped it away. Well, it's it's seven point it's seven point six minus one point eight two because you're getting rid of the roster holds. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, because they they were going to try to clear out some spots. So yeah, I guess. Yeah, but so it's pretty close to washing it away either way. Right. So they essentially gained. Uh, one point, I think it's like 1.8 is the number I got. It's like right around 2 million in cap space by moving down from number six to number 11, trading Dario Saric for TJ Warren, trading number 32 and let's call the like future pick for current pick a wash basically in terms of asset value, because I would imagine that next year they probably would have gotten someone that is as good as Ty Jerome. Then, uh, they just moved up the clock. Right. So Basically, they dropped five slots in the lottery, dropped a tier in the lottery, dumped 32, and added Aaron Baines. Because like, I think TJ and Dario are pretty close in terms of value. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see where it goes from here. And they still have ways of clearing cap space should, should the Suns but need or want to do that. That's but. not the funniest part of what the Suns did. Like not even close, I don't think. Like it, the funniest part of the Suns is that you would hear from like people around the league, and I wrote this in my superlatives thing. But like you hear from people around the league all year, the Suns aren't really doing much in-person scouting. You know, maybe they're doing videotape scouting. Maybe they were. Maybe they weren't. I don't know what their internal dynamics were. Um, but you fire Ryan McDonough and three or four high-level executives who were like running your front office, and you don't really replace them up until like April realistically when you hire Jeff Bauer. Um, so you're in a place now where you're behind the eight ball. You hire Jeff Bauer. Jeff Bauer is from Holidaysburg in Pennsylvania. How do I know this? I am also from Western Pennsylvania. He's from like central Western Pennsylvania, basically. Cam Johnson is also from Western Pennsylvania in Moon Township. Moon Township is about a hundred miles or so from Holidaysburg. Jeff Bauer in 2013 got the head coaching job at Marist after what was that? The new, he was the New Orleans general manager, got fired or let go or whatever, and then went to coach Marist in the MAAC, the MAC uh, in the uh, Northeast. I forget where Marist is exactly. So what does he do? He goes to his stomping grounds, right? He goes to the Pittsburgh area to try and recruit a kid in Cam Johnson in 2013, who was a very real recruit in 2013, by the way, six years ago. Uh, and, you know, has a visit with him and everything and, you know, remembers him. Eventually, Cam Johnson, Pitt offers him. So Cam Johnson goes to the ACC instead of going to Maris. 
Jeff Bauer remembers Cam Johnson from six years ago whenever he was the head coach at Marist and decides, hey, I know this guy. Uh, I've done the background into him. I'm, we're going to take him at number 11 when everyone else has him as a late first round pick. That's the kind of process right now that the Suns are undertaking. Um, that's not good. <laughs> it's just not good for where the league is right now. Uh, there just isn't enough front office firepower. There isn't enough talent in that front office right now, in my opinion. So I, I just keep coming back to the fact that like Jeff Bauer took the guy that he did a recruiting visit with back in 2013 during his one year as a head coach at Marist College uh, and way overdrafted him because he was familiar with him. Like that's an exceptionally stupid decision. Well, and you can add on top of that, that the, the other player they drafted was on one of the highest profile teams the last two years and played in the national championship game. So it's not like even the guy they drafted was on one of the highest profile teams too, right? That's true. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, yeah, none of it was good. None of it for the Suns uh, was a particularly impressive decision. Um, what, one thing in general that I think is like we're finding around the league is that it's not that I don't want more players to go into front office roles. I do. I think it's really important that we continue to foster that pipeline. But I think that it's much easier to go into coaching immediately as a player versus going into front office immediately as a player, if only because – when you're playing, you're in a locker room, you're dealing with X's, X's and O's constantly. You're trying to figure out like how to beat a team, uh, you know, schematically. Right. Whereas with front office work and we're seeing this with Elton brand, we're seeing this with James Jones. There's so much more involved in learning everything from the in and outs of the cap to negotiation, to building a roster, to agency dynamics, to like every, there's so many little things that go into all of this that, I think it's much more difficult to make that transition from being a player to coach versus being a player to a front office lead executive. And I think that teams would be smart to hire more players into front offices. Like, I think that would be great. And I think that there is like a hundred percent a place for them and we should continue to include, or like front offices should continue to include their role in the process. But I don't think that, teams should be immediately promoting guys like Elton Brand and James Jones because they're just missing things on the margins right now that might come back and bite them. Two things on that. Well, first of all, I agree with, I agree with it. One, it's like, it's just a, I think it's, there's an underappreciated value to having players in the room, the former players to having their voice in the process. Like I think there are elements of a guy's mentality and his game that they can appreciate better that in a way that like, let's say for example, if I ever got hired by front office, I would definitely have recent former players in, in, in there for that exact reason to, to see, to see like what it would be like to play with that guy or, or is there something that we're not seeing? Like maybe it's the way he interacts with people or something like that. The second thing is, along the lines of what you're talking about, there is a model here, and it's something more like what Calvin Booth is doing. So Calvin Booth yeah, no has, question. has been he he's been he was a scout with the Pelicans, then he was he, I believe he was in their front office, then he now he's an assistant general manager for the for the Nuggets. And 
it takes some time. And I would bet that, you know, assuming his judgment and all that stuff, I mean, it also gives gives a team time to, to uh, if, if he gets promoted from within, like, let's say the Nuggets. for Calvin Booth will be a NBA general manager at right. some point. And, and, I, and I would guess that his experience going through this will make him better. And also a really important part of this, it doesn't come up enough. And considering this is Real Jam Radio, I think this is very on brand to talk about is that another huge difference between being a player and a GM, and this, I think, the Magic Johnson situation is a great example of, even though he has experience in other things, is the challenge of running an organization. You know, that's even sometimes different than what agents have done when they've jumped over, and so that's hiring a medical staff, having scouts, analytics teams, and all that, and it's a very different challenge. You know, like, there's, in a lot of ways, being a general manager, depending on how the leadership is structured within an organization, it's more like being the CEO of a company rather than the, like, acquisitions manager, and that means a lot of other things fall on you, and being a player, other than, you know, like, having experience with the medical staff and all that, it doesn't train them for that part of it unless they're one of those players that's more of a mogul that that has you know that kind of is building that maybe in the entertainment space like lebron probably has more experience with this sort of thing than most players would but he's also probably right. not going to go into being a general manager for that exact reason like i think that uh andre Iguodala is probably a really good example of this like i think andre Iguodala, if he wants to be would be a pretty shrewd smart uh nba executive he's just a very very sharp guy very opinionated, um, just has the mentality, I think, to be able to do it from everything I've ever been told about him. And I would just like hope that a team wouldn't go, we need to do this now. We need to hire him as the general manager now. Uh, and look, like part of this is too, players now, you know, Elton Brand probably made what, $150 million in his career, right? Something like that. So, Elton Brand, maybe he was not willing to work. Like if you think Elton Brand, so Elton Brand made 170 in his career. Um, maybe Elton Brand goes, yeah, like I don't really – like I, I understand that you think that I'm really smart and you want my voice in the front office. But I've made $170 million. Like I'm not getting out of bed for – and I don't know if this is what happened with Elton. But like uh, I'm not getting out of bed for under $2 million a year. And that's just general manager salary, right? So – I wonder if that can be part of it, right? Like Magic Johnson, I think that part of the reason Magic Johnson realized that he didn't want to do the Lakers job anymore is he was just like, I am sick of this shit. Like I have no real reason to be dealing with the amount of scrutiny, with the amount of bullshit that I have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. I'm above it. I don't want to deal with it anymore because literally Magic Johnson is one of the few people who can say they are greater than the person who runs the basketball operations department for the Los Angeles Lakers. And uh, if that's your situation, that's great. And I wonder if there are a lot of players that like just will see themselves in that situation going forward, especially the ones that are highly successful, the ones that are as smart as you know they are. I, I wonder if, that plays a role in this going forward. 
I mean, we could be seeing it with like Kobe right now. I mean, Kobe can do a lot of things, and I, I'm guessing that he doesn't have too much interest running an NBA team. I, my yeah, like I, is that he he could have been he could have been good at it. Um, Kobe would have been good at it, yeah. And but if, I mean, he has better things to do with his time. I mean, and and the magic point is is such an amazing thing with his situation is that there are so many people in the basketball world that would that would do anything for an opportunity like the one that came. And right. Magic just isn't one of those people. He has been so successful in the rest of his life that he didn't need it. And that's that's both a statement of just absolute respect for what he has accomplished in his post-playing career, but also, for me, a criticism of ownership to happen to give that job to one of the few people who might not want it enough to burn the candle hard enough to do it well. No question. No question. I think that's 100% right. Um, I'll just be very interested to see where this all goes from here, because uh, the other team that I thought did horribly on draft night was Philly. Um, Yeah, I mean, from a value perspective? Yeah, like none of it really made sense, so... um, they were so locked in on Matisse Thibel from the jump, basically, uh, in terms of their evaluation process and everything, that the Celtics were able to sniff that out and, you know, said, hey, we're going to take Thibel at 20. Maybe they took Thibel at 20. Maybe Elton Brand made the call to move up to 20. That's certainly what Elton said at his press conference. But, you know, they were so locked in on Thibel that they felt the need to move up and get him in a draft where there were so many players that would have fit exactly what Philadelphia needed. And it's not that Matisse might not be a very good player. He might be a very good player. I just don't also like giving up a pick at number 33, which I think was like pretty darn close in commensurate value in this specific draft to number 24. I think they basically paid double to try and move up and get Matisse Thibel because they were so locked in on him. And because it was just known throughout the league at that stage that Thibel to Philly was a promise uh, that well, and, they shut him down early in the process. And beyond all that, for Philadelphia specifically, the 33 pick was incredibly valuable because that player doesn't have a cap hold. And, you know, like they basically, yep, you know, 100%. Like that, that player and 34. Yeah. So they, they could have done a lot with those picks to build out their depth. And even if those guys aren't necessarily a part of their team next year, they're a part of it moving forward. And the the Sixers are going to need all the help they can get if they, you know, maybe they end up staying over the cap this year, but I mean, they're still going to be super expensive and low cost guys are a really important part of keeping things as manageable as they can be. And so that's what made it really surprising for me that they were that they were able to give that up. The other part of it that I really enjoyed was based on the reporting that I've heard about about the the Celtics taking Thibel. The closest parallel that I could think of in the modern NBA involved the Sixers as well, but it's when Sam Hinkie was the general manager and they went the other way. It was so obvious that the Suns with no that the Magic really wanted Alfred Payton that yep, they that's took the Alfred exact Payton. Parallel. They took Alfred Payton and extorted the magic out of, incidentally, the Sixers' own pick. And so that is, it's a great illustration of how the front office changed. I mean, with, with a burner in between, uh, of how that has changed from being the team that was ahead of the curve and extorting to being the extortee. Yeah, I think that that's, Sorry. Yeah, I think that's 100% right um, on just exactly what happened here with Philadelphia. Um, you know, we can we can talk about, like... You know, I think that the guy that went at 33, the deal that the pick that they ended up having to move to trade up for Matisse Thibel, who I think would have been there at 24, by the way, um, from what I was told, Boston was not super interested in Thibel. 
Um, and then additionally, Oklahoma City was sitting either at 21 or 23 after they ended up moving down for Memphis or moving down with Memphis. Oklahoma City shut down Darius Baisley. And uh, that's also thought to have been a promise. So basically, the Sixers just didn't do great intel work this year and got burned by it because they didn't do great Intel work. And then additionally, everyone else knew their Intel work, like what they wanted to do. So it created a situation where they were primed to be exploited on draft night. And then you throw in the fact that they moved 34 for two future seconds from Atlanta. Again, this was a draft where I got like, you know, something in the range of 35 names in terms of guys that teams thought were first rounders. Uh, Bruno Fernando was one of those guys. Bruno Fernando, I think, certainly would have really helped them shore up their depth behind Joel Embiid, potentially. And then you also throw in the fact that they sold 42 um, essentially for $3 million, $1 million of which was to get off the Jonathan Simmons deal. Uh the Jonathan Simmons deal that they probably would have just waived and stretched uh, for $333,000 over the course of the next three years. If you look, though, having to move up from 24 to 20 or thinking that you had to move up from 24 to 20 adds about $388,000 to the slot value of the pick. So they essentially, by moving Jonathan Simmons, only just saved money. Like they didn't actually gain more cap space. They just saved a million dollars and they gained $2 million from the Washington Wizards. So they sold 42 and then for 57, which was, um, how did they get, I forget how they got 57, but they just like essentially sold it to the Pistons as well for Jordan bone. I know that they have a second round pick coming back there, but it's top 55 protected. So it's like not going to be a second round pick basically. So they entered this draft with five picks, four of which were in the range of 24 to 42. They left with one player in that range, basically, with Matisse Thibel, and then took 54 as well, which was Mariel Shayok, who was at 98 on my board. So this, this was just rough. Like, there, there's no other way about it. They didn't clear cap space. They, I guess, got two future second rounders for their trouble, but, like, those seconds are probably not going to be as good as 33 and 34. So I just keep looking at this, and I'm, like, just shocked with how bad this went. When you could think about the the value proposition of making sure that they traded traded so much for Tobias Harris, I mean Harris was right. a pending free agent. If they were willing to give him a boatload of money, it doesn't sound like the Clippers were willing to do that. And so, not only trading for him, I mean there are certain circumstances where that could be worth it. I thought that he helped them in the playoffs, and it was good to get that assessment of how he fit with the rest of their team. But they gave up a ton for him. And and for a pending yep. free agent, and it looked like they were going to have cap space. And yeah, he has a low cap hold, but does I mean my instinct is as long as Jimmy Butler's still around, they're not really going to use that too much to their advantage. And so it again, it was a strange use of resources. Even if you agree with the talent evaluation, it's still a strange use of resources. So I think that ties in with your point. Yeah, and I think that it's just at the point now where like. NBA teams are reading what Philadelphia is doing like a book. It's just all very transparent, I think. And that's a problem for them. Like if they lose Jimmy Butler this summer, they're, they're in some real trouble here. Uh, like, look, they're going to be competitive if only just because they have Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. But they have really given up a lot of flexibility over the course of the last couple of years, really over the course of the, I would say over the course of the last two years to kind of make this run 
with Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris and their two stars. And I just wonder if it's all going to be for naught. And, and like they have just kind of, instead of playing the longer game, like, but then you can throw into like what happened with Boston, right? Boston tried to play the longer game and they failed it. Um, but I just think that there's a way to do it without giving up all of your flexibility, basically. Um, you know, trading for Otto Porter instead of Tobias Harris, for instance, would have been one reason. Well, yeah, or if you really like Tobias Harris, just don't trade everything for him. You know, maybe you try to get him on a on a lower price return. The Clippers probably would have just said yes. They were considering their circumstances if they didn't want to be the team that paid Tobias Harris. And again, that's reading the tea leaves. If you could see that that's where the Clippers were, and you can do that by negotiating. If the Clippers aren't willing to take a relatively modest deal, then that probably means they're intending on keeping him. And if they are willing to take that, then they weren't. So then you're you're in a pretty sweet spot. That's an opportunity. But we don't have a ton of time left, and I think the way that I want to end this is with a short conversation. I, you know, Some of my listeners are going to be very into college basketball, but what I th- was thinking would be a good kind of little closing thing would be, let's say people who listen to this podcast haven't really watched much college or international guys. Mm-hmm. Summer League is about two weeks away. Who should they be kind of watching intently? Like who, who would be worth kind of like getting this early look on to, to see where things are going beyond, let's say, their own team, whoever that may be? Sure. So I, I would say Zion. Uh, we don't have to spend a lot of time on that. I don't think John Morant is playing Summer League, unfortunately. Um, so we're not going to get a great chance to see him. Um, you know, you can just go up and down all of the top 10 guys I think are going to be important. The ones that are playing, at least I don't think Cam Radish is playing either. Not sure if Darius Garland is playing. Have you heard anything about that? I thought I heard something that he wanted to, but that is very different from actually playing. Yeah, I'm, I'm unclear if he's going to play yet. Um, in terms of like later first rounders, I'll be interested to see Darius Baisley play competitively for the first time in a long time. Like he got the two combine games and looked okay in those, but I'll be intrigued there. Um, Brandon Clark is going to be just an excitement factory at summer league, which is really good. Kevin Porter is going to be fascinating to watch at summer league because I think he is just such a interesting, you know, bucket getter and, and like summer league could portend really, really well for him. Seeing Nasir Little get out of North Carolina's scheme, which didn't fit him and wasn't conducive to his skill set, I think will be very interesting. Um, I have a couple. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Shoot him out. Seku Dambuya is going to be really interesting for me. How do, how does he look physically? So Dambuya is unusual because he's exceedingly young, but has already played against higher level competition than a lot of these guys. So see, I'm, so like the French league is. It's just kind of messy, I would say. Yeah, it's better it is messy. than messy. It's, yeah, I should say he's played against older competition more so than better. Yeah, it's not it's like he was better in the, than it's college not like he was basketball. In the yeah, like it's better than college basketball, but it's not like yeah, it's not like he's playing Euro League like Gogo was. It's not like yeah. he's playing like ACB like you know Luka Doncic was a year ago, or even sure. like I think the Adriatic League is even a little bit stronger than the French League. You would know better than I. Some point, yeah. so, it's, some, it's point you, like some point, some point, you Schmitz league. and I can have a discussion on that. Yeah, like the French League is more athletic than the Adriatic League. I think the Adriatic League is probably a little bit stronger in terms of overall talent level. So yeah, like. It's it's just a different – it'll be different for Seku, I would say. So then I would say – so then there are a couple other kind of like curio type guys. I don't know if Bull's going to play, so obviously he would be in that list if he does. Kabengale, I'm really interested in whether he plays because the Clippers are – they, they'll be less of a mystery box by July 5th, but they still kind of are one for me right now, so I'm excited about that. And then the other group is – guy, and I would say just because of the unusual path, 
I'm going to get it wrong again. Smilojic is is another one just because I I didn't watch him at Santa Cruz at all, so I'm, I'm interested to see how all that works out. Are players who might, either because of how and where they were drafted or just because of, of who they are, might end up being more important for their team this upcoming year than most. So for me, Thibel is yeah. there because the, the Sixers went up to get him. He could end up being really important. I'm interested in Nikhil Alexander-Walker beyond the fact that I just like him. For that reason, Grant Williams maybe yep. for the Celtics. and. Yep. Carson Edwards too for the Celtics. Like, I, I think could be in that conversation. I think Carson well. can play like a very real role next year. So yeah, those types of players are, are really interesting because you're looking at them through a different lens. I mean, obviously, you're, the long term is more important than the short term for for any player who's drafted because that's just the way this works. Even Zion, like you know, like as he could be good right away, you get into that. But but those type of players, and I mean, you might see that also with with Paschal because the Warriors are just so talent deprived right now with the injuries and everything else. So like yeah. he, he might end up. I, I think, yeah, I think Eric Pascal legit plays very real minutes for the Warriors next year. Yeah. So and I think he's the one that is most likely to do so out of Smalajic and Jordan Poole. And there's a really interesting parallel there because the last time I can recall the Warriors having three picks in the first 45, their third pick was the one who ended up not playing more originally, but ended up playing more. And that was the draft where they got Harrison Barnes, Festus Azili, and Draymond Green. Not that I'm comparing the, the players at all. Right. No, 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 for sure. Um, yeah, I, I think Pascal will play legit minutes for them next year. I think he's like actually very good at basketball. Yeah, it's and I'm really excited for summer league. It's going to be uh, partially, you know, watching a little bit less, doing less draft scouting makes me more interested in it because it's more to learn, more to see, and everything like that. But also that it's going to be coming not necessarily on the heels, but partially at the same time as all of the other insanity is just going to ratchet up another level of 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 all of this from our perspective, but also from the fans' perspective. Yeah, no doubt. I am really, really excited for summer league. I'm excited to see people, man. Like. I just I love summer league for uh, getting to see you know friends, getting to see people that I just don't get to see as much over the course of the year. Um, it's just it's a great time, man. Summer league. I, I will want to leave summer league after three days, but at the same token, uh, it's fun and I'm excited for it. It'll be a pretty great three days, though. So that that sounds about right. True. Very good point. Thanks so much for taking time, and congratulations on all the great work you did this this draft year, I guess we'll call it. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'm always happy to come on. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at The Athletic. You can listen to the Game Theory podcast, which he does, which is awesome. And you can follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on. One of my favorite guests for a good reason and often a listener's favorite guest. And I I hope that's still true. I I fully expect that it will be. And we're headed into a really exciting offseason. I know some podcasts take a little bit of a hiatus for the offseason. Real Jam Radio does not. We are once a week, 52 weeks a year. That's just the way this works and have a lot of cool stuff coming down the pike. So a great way to keep in touch with the show is to subscribe and download every episode. Really does help and it'll still come out different days of the week depending on guest availability and everything like that. And also, of course, spreading the word, leaving a rating and review review in the podcast player of your choosing. Really do appreciate it. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. If it's not, you can leave one there. If you want to be super awesome, you can leave one both places because Apple is still so big in our business. 
But the most important thing you can do with this show and any other that has them is check out our sponsors, Yahoo Daily Fantasy. Go to yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy. Use that pod 25 promo code for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. BetOnline.ag, Podcast One promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. And TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car. As always, feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, is available, or you can send it to me at danielrueNBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. My response, frequency and timing is tough, especially now. I mean, I've, I've just been unloading pieces as well, going through everything, basically everything that I'd started that I wanted to finish before the offseason, be, uh, be, base your compensation piece and all that kind of stuff. So I don't have a ton of time for responding. Written work, you can check that out at The Athletic. And then dunked on, Nate and I are still going strong five times a week. And the timing this year is actually pretty awesome for us because since it starts on technically June 30th is Friday, so we will do our first five times in the normal week are going to be the five first days of free agency. So that's going to be really exciting. It's going to be fun to do it that way. And then Summer League and all that kind of stuff and Real Jam Radio is coming along for the ride. Going to be doing the whole thing, have some really cool ideas. So it's a great reason to subscribe and everything like that. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Microsoft's Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet, all in one. This thin and adaptable device has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that can even store your Surface Pen. Surface Pro 8 is Microsoft's most powerful pro yet. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash Surface Pro 8. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited, world-class treatment center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.